He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Will you pray with me? Holy Father, our righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, your Son. And yet, Father, we confess that the wisdom of Christ is often missing from our speech. And, and we lean on our own wisdom instead. Forgive us, Lord, and, and fill us with the spirit of your Son that we might speak wisdom and that we might use our tongues for good. Lord Jesus, we know that the righteous man stores up the word of God in his heart that he might turn away from evil and do good. Father, we want to be able to say with the psalmist that I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. But you know our hearts, Lord, and you know how poorly we arrange our priorities. You know how little effort we have put into hiding your word in our hearts. Oh, Holy Spirit, we know that it is the word of God that you use to guide us, to shine the light of the wisdom on our paths, to, to put the words of wisdom on our tongue, a word in season. And, and yet, Lord, we've been negligent. We believe your word is life and wisdom and power, but we've not valued it more highly than we've valued silver or gold. Forgive us, Lord. We confess that we are by nature fools. And we ask that you would instruct us in the way. Give us insight into your word that we might grow more hungry for, for even more insight from your word. Forgive our apathy and give us the zeal to pursue you in the, in the word that you've given and in prayer. Even now, Lord, as we prepare our heart to hear your word preached, we ask that you would fill each hearer with faith and insight that we might turn from our follies and walk in truth and righteousness and without fear. For the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we gather, amen. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Amen. If you are going to Children's Church, I'm going to dismiss you at this time. There is no Children's Church. Okay, well, then you're sticking with us through the sermon. Let me invite you to rise to prepare your hearts for the, for the message. Thy promise, Lord, and thy command have brought us here to 
if you're as panicked as I am that the kids are still here because normally I try to adjust my message to be suitable you know but if that's you there are some word searches out there that you know if you think your kid's not gonna is gonna get antsy there uh, out on the table out there are some uh, word searches on Exodus that have been prepared just for this purpose but uh, we are continuing in our survey of the book of Exodus Moses has asked to see God's glory, and God said no. Well, he didn't exactly say no. He, he said, I'll, show, I'll let all my goodness pass before you. And, and I think we'll understand a little better what that means this morning. Um, so I'll let my goodness pass before you, and I'll declare before you my covenant name, um, which is, we're going to see, that's kind of the same thing letting his goodness pass before him and declaring his name. Uh, I'll cover you in the cleft of the rock so that you can see my back, but you, you couldn't see, you couldn't survive seeing my face, at least not yet. And that's where we left off. Uh, we're going to really focus on just a handful of verses this morning, but, but I would like to work through all of it together. Um, we're in chapter 34, if you want to make your way over to to uh, Exodus chapter 34, Moses uh, has thrown down those stone tablets. Remember, he comes down and he sees the idolatry that's going down and on, and he, he throws down those Ten Commandments. And, and do you remember how those Ten Commandments were described? The Lord said to Moses, this is chapter 24, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. It's even more explicit in chapter 31. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Chapter 32, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back. They were written, the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. 
So that was then, but those tablets have been destroyed. Uh, now Moses has to cut tablets for himself. Uh, and there's a deadline. Uh, he's to be prepared to appear before the Lord with these tablets in hand tomorrow. Let's read it. Verses 1 to 4. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the, uh, the language of guarding the mountain, not letting uh, animals near, that brings us back to the, to the first days of, the, uh, of Israel's time at this mountain. You remember, they've come out of Egypt, they were born on eagles' wings to the foot of Mount Sinai, uh, and, then, um, and then we read this in chapter 19. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up the mountain. So you remember that in chapter 19? Well, once, uh, and you may remember, once Moses went up there, God warned him again. He says, the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through the Lord uh, to look and many of them perish. So God is now renewing his covenant. And so the scene is reminiscent of the time before the golden calf. When God set himself apart as holy before their eyes and ears. So Moses cut some tablets. You know, that would take some doing for me, even with modern tools. I don't know how he did this, but he did it in an afternoon. Let me just say wow to what our forefathers could do. But uh, anyway, he goes up the mountain, and this is, I think, where, um, where the promise made last week that the Lord would cause all his goodness to pass before Moses um, and that he would have the name of the Lord pronounced for him, that he'd have to be shielded from the glory of God's face and content with seeing his back. Well, I think that happens here. Let's read it, verses 5 to 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgression, forgiving sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, Moses spoke to the Lord like a man speaks with his friend. We were told that last week. He wanted to know who the Lord was sending him with him. Remember last week he says, you know, you say, you say that you know me by name and, and that I fav- found favor in your sight, but you haven't told me who's going to go with me. Do you remember that was how he, he began his, his complaint before the Lord? Well, turn, if you would, to 1 Peter for me. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter's talking about the living hope that we've all been reborn into, and he says this, picking up in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, Moses is the first of these prophets who was longing to know who it was Remember, he says, you haven't told me who who this angel is that you're going to send with me. And uh, he he wanted to know who the angel that you were going to send with me was, but he's still working on that them part. Uh, He he wants God to go with them, not just with him. So then he wanted to see God's glory. And and for for one who hangs out, so to speak, not to be irreverent about it, but he speaks with God like a man speaks with his friend, okay? So for for one who hangs out with God and the Spirit of Christ resting in him, pointing to future glories, isn't that the same thing to know who God, for him to see God's glory and to know who that angel is, isn't that the same thing? Whether he knew it or not, he was asking to see, so to speak, the gospel. And he did, only he saw it with, like we do, with our ears. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And, and, and Moses is seizing on every one of these words, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity. What have they just done? Forgiving transgression, what have they just done? Forgiving sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? You know, what did Moses see that day? I don't know. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So I don't think it really matters what his eyes laid hold of. 
what he heard was enough. The Lord repeating again and again his covenant name. The Lord insists that he's merciful and is gracious. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin. He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love and mercy. Yes, I know that it says he will by no means clear the guilty, but Moses has been given instructions about the sin sacrifice, hasn't he? So we know God has a plan for that. He knows that the God who is forgiving is sovereign to do so. And we know, standing where we are on this side of the empty tomb, that that God did demand death for our sins. He didn't simply clear us. The penalty for our transgression was laid on another. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this is God's character. Sure, there's holiness there, but the alternative, sin, is deadly and hopeless. So, do you see, But do you see the obvious focus on mercy and grace and forgiveness and that sort of thing. Is it any wonder then that Moses seizes the moment? The moment that the Lord provided him. But he seizes the moment. If you're so gracious, then go with us. Because we're sinful. I know the people are stiff-necked. That's why you have to go into our, in our midst. We need your merciful presence. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, verse 8, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So God's response in verse 10, he says, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. You notice that um, God never loses the your people thing. Even though he agrees to go in the midst of them, uh, and Paul does tell us that the people were baptized into Moses, uh, but, but God will make a covenant, and, and he will exalt himself through what he does with this people. Now, in verses 11 to 17, we get some instructions, and we've heard some of these before, uh, so they don't need a whole lot of, of comment, but I do think it's instructive for us to notice which commands are repeated? He doesn't repeat everything that he said. He really reminds us uh, of the expert- expectations he has of them as his covenant people uh, to those whom he has extended his mercy and among those whom he d- deigns to dwell. He says, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. 
lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice and you take their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods, you shall not make for yourself any gods of metal. You see why he's chosen to bring this one up again? It's pretty obvious, right? This is on the heels of the golden calf. So that's where they stumbled. It's where they need to be especially on guard. Now, do you notice, my, my single brothers and sisters here do notice that, that this principle carries over from Old Testament to New Testament. Uh, the New Testament insists that you only marry within the Lord. A spouse who does not know God will inevitably tend to draw you away from the Lord. So, you were idolaters, beware. What else? Oh, yeah, you owe me. I delivered you. You're not your own. You were bought with a price, a price that had not yet been paid for them, but uh, it was still credited to them by faith. I delivered you from Egypt. Now you are mine. So, Let's make sure you remember that, verses 18 to 20. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time I appointed in the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib you came, from, came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. So the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, if you remember, is a reminder of the haste with which they left Egypt. They didn't have time to bring leavened bread with them, right? You left with such urgency Make sure you remember that urgency, the urgency with which you left your life of slavery. And keeping that feast comes to involve searching our homes for remaining uh, leaven in your home, a ritual symbolizing sanctification as you hunt out those influences of sin in your life. As we complete our departure from Egypt, the, the point is this, Repentance recoils at one's own sin. It doesn't wait for an opportune time to repent. And don't forget that your, uh, your sons belong to me. You have to buy those back from me. But I, don't, I, I get your firstborn donkeys and stallions and rams too. Those you can redeem or not, but you've got to redeem your sons. Everything you have belongs to me, God says. And this ritual is to remind them of that. Why? Because they've demonstrated that they don't get it. If they did, they wouldn't have worshipped an idol. You're mine, and you, you, you quickly and decisively and eagerly left Egypt. Now add patience to your eagerness. See how we're supposed to be eager 
but we're supposed to be patiently eager. And I know those sound like their intention, but we're supposed to be both. Six days you shall work, but the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruit of the wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to a beer before the Lord your God three times in the year. Now the, the Sabbath is a picture of the rest for which we wait, right? We're longing to enter into God's rest. Uh, Keep that hope before you is the idea. And remember, too, the Feast of Weeks, uh, which we know as, as Pentecost, uh, and the, as well as the Feast of Ingathering together, they form a, a picture of God's great harvest, the first fruits of that harvest and then the total ingathering of that harvest. Uh, you know, Jesus Christ is the first fruits, and then when he comes, we're all harvested with him. One's the deposit, the other's the fullness first fruits and the ingathering. So those are the things that, that Israel is to keep before them because that keeps their hope there as they patiently wait for it. So God wants us to keep the hope for which we wait ever before our minds. Sabbath, Pentecost, Harvest. You got regular reminders. You've got special reminders because we're prone to forgetfulness. We are. We're prone to forgetfulness and apathy and all sorts of things. Look, notice verse twenty-four. God is fully aware of any practical concerns we might have. You know, three times a year, you're, you're and they didn't have a you know subway system or or anything. It was, you had some travel to go to the temple three times a year. All your males are supposed to go. Well, doesn't that just invite our enemies to swoop in? Look, no one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. Don't let fear interfere with your hope. I've got you. In verses 25 to 26, God concludes with yet another reminder of haste and holiness and his claim on us. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. As for that that last one, again, I think the image is obviously one of using that which is meant for life for death instead. Uh, You know, that's precisely what the the scribes and the Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day. Uh, They were were taking the, the milk of God's word and killing people with it. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are yourselves. Now, why did they do that? 
because they didn't understand. Because they were zealous, but their zeal was without understanding. What is so very plain and obvious in our passage is that God is merciful and kind. Yes, he is holy, but he did not give us the law so that we could earn our own righteousness before him. Quite the contrary. The law was added so that transgression would increase that we might recognize our need for forgiveness, cry out to God for salvation. For I bear them witness, Paul says, of the Jews, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now remember that, Christ is the end end of the law for righteousness. That's about to come up again as Moses veils his face. So Moses carves the Ten Commandments on the stones and he comes down and and the Lord said to Moses, write these words for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water and he wrote on the tablet the words of the covenant the Ten Commandments. So this is the second time he's gone up for a 40-day, 40-night fast on the mountain. So they're repeating. They brought us back to chapter 19, and, and, and they're repeating the fast. They're, God is starting over with us. It's a covenant renewal. Now, I don't advise you to try a 40-day fast. It's obvious, though, that because of these two fasts, that when Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness before being tempted by Satan. Jesus is being presented to us as the one like Moses for whom Israel has been waiting. So let's read read the rest of the chapter. It gets really fascinating. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, now notice this, that Moses didn't know it, okay? You don't know how, how much you radiate the grace of God, you're the last to know it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing about this. But Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all of the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. So it's pretty obvious what's going on here because our our translations have made it easy for us. But if you were to uh, look at some medieval paintings of Moses coming down the mountain with the tablets of stone in his hand, you might find something really odd in Moses might be presented with horns. 
Uh, you know, we t- typically think of the devil having horns, right? So, um, but the word for shining in verses 30 and 35 uh, is, is karan, Q-R-N in English letters, right? And those are the same consonants that are used for the, the noun horn. Um, and so Jerome, when he was translating the, uh, the Latin Vulgate, um, he saw that this is the same letter as horns and that the verb only appears in, in one more place in, in Psalm 39, 31, uh, a participle where it clearly means having horns. And so he translated it that way here. I don't want to get us in the weeds here, but psalm, that psalm uses a different verbal stem, so it's not as safe to assume they mean the same thing. And more importantly, the Greek translators, uh, translating well before Jerome, uh, translated it as shining. And that fits the context nicely. I can sort of see how the two ideas are related. Um, the horns are given to an, an animal for glory. The altar has horns for glory. Uh, glory is, is rooted in two concepts biblically, weightiness or gravitas and brightness or shining. So I can see how there could be, you know, a verbal use of, of this root that points to glory, to shining. Uh, I don't think Moses had horns. I think he glowed. And I think they reacted to him like they reacted um, They reacted the same way when God showed up in a blazing fire and an earthquake and a booming voice. They shrunk back. Remember that? Now, Paul comments on this verse, so it behooves us to go there first as we try to understand it. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 3. Let's step in at chapter at verse three, Second Corinthians three three, and you know that I'm sorry, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the Living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. So Paul is is drawing a contrast for us here between two covenants. I'd have you flip, but I don't want to drive you crazy flipping. Uh, So listen to Jeremiah 31, 33. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with them, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So that's the contrast in view. The old covenant and the new. Written on tablets of stone, written on the tablets of human heart. Now look at how Paul describes the old covenant made at Mount Sinai, verse 7. Striking words. Now if the, what? If the ministry of death carved on letters, in letters on stone 
came with such glory that the Israelites couldn't gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? The Old Covenant is a ministry of death, and yet it came with glory, such glory that they couldn't bear to look. But its glory, both Moses' face and the covenant itself, was a fading glory. Secondly, it glowed much dimmer than the one that replaced it. Keep reading. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, this is the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation, that's how the law is described. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the end. Outcome is one meaning of what was being brought to an end or coming to naught. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord there is, is, there is freedom, and we all with unveiled face. See, we are very bold, and we have unveiled face. They shrunk back and had, and Mo, and had Moses veil his face. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. They are those who shrink back. We are not. Right before the the great hall of faith in Hebrews, we read these words. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So Moses veiled his face to those who shrunk back. But we don't shrink back. Instead, we cling by faith. And so we see with unveiled faces. We, We see with the eyes of faith. Just as Moses beheld God's glory... Not so much with his eyes as with his ears. And so believing both that God is holy and, by, and, and will by no means clear the guilty and believing that he is forgiving and merciful and gracious and kind, we, pump, we boldly come to the Lord, the Holy One, instead of fleeing and shrinking back from him. We come to him with humble confession, but with the confidence of a beloved child. And as we behold him by the ear through the word, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's 
how your sanctification works. That's why Emmanuel was so important. That's why it was so important that God go with the people, not just with Moses as he leads them. If God doesn't go with Israel in her midst, she will not be transformed or be transformative. You are transformed as you get to know Jesus better and better. And when you are transformed, guess what? You become transformative. Jesus tells us to let our lights shine, not to hide the light that we've been given. But first, before we can enlighten the path of others, we really need to rekindle our own blaze, don't we? So that's the takeaway or one of them. Being in God's presence, that's what transforms you. Beholding His glory. And this side of Christ's return, that's about hearing with faith. That's about the Word of God. Another takeaway is this. God had betrothed Himself to Israel And Israel was unfaithful on the wedding night, so to speak. And yet, even that, he was willing to forgive if his people will simply repent and turn from their evil ways. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If you are guilty, repent and be wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is merciful, he is long-suffering, he is kind, and he is gracious. But he is holy, and his patience is meant to lead you to repentance. He is gentle, and he loves you. Won't you worship him with a life of obedience and praise? Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we marvel at your salvation. We who are guilty... You have purchased with your own blood. You have done everything that is necessary for us to be at peace with you forever. Father, we, we praise you that you have made the key to your salvation, crying out for one name, the name above all names, even that of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we are grateful that you are merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We come before you, Father, confessing our sin. We are, we fall so far short of your glory. And yet, Father, our repentance is real. Our faith is real. We want to know you better. We want to behold you as you are held out to us in the word. We want to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We want to be freed from those patterns of sin that still plague us. Oh, Lord, for the sake of your glory, won't you make it so in our life? We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.